Father, we do come before you and we do thank you for your Son. Your Son whom you willingly gave uh, for us. You sent him and he willingly came to die for our sins. And he did so and he rose from the dead and he is at your right hand. Father, we thank you that you have, through Christ, brought forgiveness of sins. And Father, I pray as we look into your word today that you would just remind us of the tremendous truths that you have revealed in your word concerning your son, Jesus. And uh, for those who don't know you, Lord God, I pray that you'd be piercing their hearts, that they might see themselves rightly and call out, to you through your son for salvation so father i thank you for this time we pray that you would use your word in our hearts to bring about that which is pleasing we pray this in your son's precious name amen have you ever obeyed the lord and then been maligned for that have you ever obeyed the lord and been slandered for that have you ever suffered or been reviled for your good behavior in Christ? Maybe it's in a marriage. Maybe it's at work. Maybe it's at church. The reality is, if God should will it, there will be times where we will suffer for doing what is right. And that suffering can be pretty serious. It can shake us up. We can be tempted to fear. We can be tempted in those situations to to respond in ways that are not from the Lord. But how are we to respond as believers when that inevitable suffering comes for doing what is right? Well, we're going to see today a continuation and and a partial conclusion from the book of 1 Peter concerning how we are to respond to suffering when we do the right thing in Jesus Christ. And I think within this, we're going to see the main focus is remembering what Christ has done for us. Turn your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 18 to 22. And just a, this is a longer passage, so I'm just going to briefly go through the context. But Peter is writing to believers in Asia Minor, those who are suffering and are about to suffer a fiery ordeal for, for following Jesus Christ, for obeying him. And Peter has shared already in light of that the wonderful reality that they are temporary sojourners on this earth, blessed with a glorious salvation in Christ that we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And even though we might suffer a little while in this life, we, we praise the Lord and glorify his name for this great salvation that we have in Christ. Tremendous realities that we have. And then we saw so clearly how we are to live in light of that salvation, to fix our hope completely on Christ, to be holy because he is holy as we trust him, to live in the context of godly fear, to love the body of Christ and to yearn for the word of God because he is building us up as this spiritual temple to offer sacrifices to him that we might be a distinct and are a distinct people proclaiming his excellencies. And then we came to the application portion of the book in the middle of chapter 2, verse 11, where we saw that we are to stay far away from fleshly lusts which wage war with our souls. We are to keep our behavior excellent among non-believers or Gentiles, as we see in 1 Peter 2. And within that, Peter revealed some ordered relationships in which one might suffer and how we are to respond. Certainly with governments, we are to submit to them in the context of, of obeying the Lord. 
in the context of the slave master, a work relationship to, to trust in the Lord, to, to do the right thing with a conscience that is right towards God. And even if we should suffer and endure that, uh, the reality is God's favor is upon you. We saw that we were called for this purpose, that we were called to follow in the footsteps of Christ because he suffered and how he suffered. He did not revile and return or utter any threats, but he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. And God brought about our redemption through that tremendous reality in Christ. And then we saw in chapter 3 how wives are to relate to their husbands, even non-believing husbands, to be, to be adorning their hearts with the character qualities of Christ and husbands living according to God's word that our prayers would not be uh, hindered. And then all that we saw should be summed up in the context of a right mindset, tender-hearted, harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, all those things, uh, having same-mindedness towards one another. And yet, even in the midst of that, we know that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil, but his eyes are upon the righteous and his ears attentive to their prayers. And as we've come in the second portion of uh, chapter 3, we've seen that the reality is that we might suffer for what is doing for doing what is right if God should so will that. But within that, we are to let Christ rule our hearts so that his redemptive will is done. So as we look at our passage today, we're going to see really a, a, a finale or a pinnacle concerning the reasons why and how we should respond to suffering for Christ. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, and I want to back up to 13 as we read through because it's all together. As If you were here with us last week, you'll know that. Uh, chapter 3, verse 13, And who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, do not be troubled, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And keep a good conscience so that in the very thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better if God should so will it that you suffer for doing what is right than for what is wrong. And then we come to our passage, which is really an expansion or an explanation of the purpose. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who is, at, who is at the right hand, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him? Now, this is a tremendous passage, and yet as we've read through it, you'll realize there are some difficult interpretive issues, and I think uh, they may be difficult, but we can understand the main point of what God wants us to know from this passage, and, and I think we'll also gain some insight into those issues. Now, before we begin, I want to explain how this passage fits into the context of what we've seen. 
Notice uh, we see there is really uh, verses 18 and 20 through 22, what we'll look at today, are really an explanation or a reason why it is good to suffer for doing what is right or to suffer according to God's will. It's a reason why or because Jesus did the same thing as we'll say. Notice verse 18, for Christ also died for sins. And that term translated for in Greek is actually translated many times because, because. And if you look at the passage and how it works together, this will help us in understanding what we're going to look at today. Verse 17, for it is better, and we saw last week, it is good, literally good, If God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than what is wrong, because Christ also died, and that word could also be translated suffered, by the way, some virgins have it suffered, and I agree with that, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. The overall implication of what we're going to look at today is that you may think suffering is random and there's no purpose to it. But just as Christ's suffering was purposeful and brought about our redemption, so too, if God should will it for you, it is good, just like the ultimate good that he brought about in Jesus Christ. And that comes from this. For because uh, Christ also, again, it's connecting the two pieces together. You see, if we don't see our suffering this way, we're not going to respond rightly to our suffering. We're going to get bogged down in the difficulties and the emotions of what happens to us. But as we'll see, Christ's suffering was purposeful. It brought about the greatest good, salvation to those who would believe. And so with that in mind, let's briefly uh, get ourselves up to this point where we just saw that transition. You'll remember we saw in verse 13 uh, what uh, Peter said, and who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? We looked at this already a couple weeks ago. But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. The reality is suffering doesn't come all the time, every single day for believers, but God might will it so. We know there's difficulties that do come. We know indeed those who desire to live godly will be persecuted. But he says, who is there to harm you if you prove zealous for what is good? Hey, if you're doing the right thing in your job, you're doing the right thing with the government, you're doing the right thing in your relationships, by and large, people are not going to harm you for doing good. But if God should so will that you suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. The reality is you're walking rightly with the Lord. In context, when you suffer insults, being falsely accused, being reviled for your good behavior in Christ, it's an evidence you are blessed. We saw that in chapter 4. Walking with the Lord, tremendous reality. And then we saw last week that we are to, instead of uh, fearing and being intimidated and being troubled, we are to allow our minds to be controlled by Christ. That's so important. This is such a, a, a very popular passage in verse 15. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. But there's a context to it. The end of verse 14. And do not fear their intimidation. And do not be troubled. Those are commands. When you are suffering for doing what is right, the temptation is to fear the situations or the people. The temptation is to be shaken up or, or troubled. And we know this is a quote from Isaiah 8, where Isaiah and the godly were being slandered. But God said, don't fear or be troubled, Isaiah, but you should dread me. You should fear me instead. And that's the same sense that is coming through this passage. 
Do not fear their intimidation or be troubled. But, verse 15 begins with the but, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Jesus is far above these things. Uh, He is sovereign over all of them. Let the Lord be the Lord over your thoughts. Sanctify Christ as Lord of your heart. Your heart is your mind. You're thinking. It's the inner man. Set apart Jesus as the Lord of your thinking. And how do we do that? We apply the word of God, what he says through his word by his spirit. We listen to him. My sheep hear my voice. We set apart Christ as Lord. It's so easy when you're going through a difficulty to start running through your head all the situations and all the stuff and what people are saying and whatever it might be. And guess what? It begins to lord over your thoughts. And certainly in different trials, not just simply suffering for Christ, but different trials, those, our thoughts can be, can be, uh, they can be, they can run away with all the possibilities of what is going on rather than allowing Christ to be Lord of my heart. And notice, when we allow Christ to be Lord of our hearts, we have two subcommands that relate to God's purposes when we suffer. He says, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And, and this passage, as I've shared, is not about apologetics. Just because the word apologia is in there doesn't mean it's about apologetics. This passage is about being ready always, in advance, to share to those who might ask you about the hope that is in you. That means that it is evident that in the midst of suffering for doing what is right, Christ is being manifest in your life. You have hope that is beyond this world. And someone says, what's going on in you? And you say, let me tell you about that. You see, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Christ convicted me of my sin. And he revealed himself through the word of God as the only savior, the savior of the world. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And he enabled me to believe the truth concerning him. And I was saved. And I have eternal life. So I'm ready in advance to share the the, the evidence, the facts concerning what has happened to me. It's not simply my testimony of how I felt about how I got saved. It is a defense. It is the evidentiary reality of what Christ has done to save me, yet with gentleness and reverence. You see, God might open a door through the very difficulties which we are tempted to fret and be troubled about. God took the greatest evil concerning Christ and turned it into the greatest good. And there's another command that we saw last week, verse 16, and keep a good conscience, or literally, be continually holding on to a good conscience. It means don't sin, and when you sin, confess your sin. You see, our consciences can be seared, they can be deceived. It's, it, we saw it's the awareness of self, but yet when God's word illumines our conscience, we can see ourselves rightly, not because of our conscience, but because of God's word. And when we sin, we need to confess and keep short accounts. We need to have a right heart before the Lord. Don't be troubled. That would be sin. Don't be worried. That would be sin. Don't revile and return. That would be sin. Don't utter any threats. That would be sin. Don't return evil for evil. That would be sin. Keep your conscience clean. Obey the Lord. And why? That those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Wait a second. That doesn't sound too nice. 
No, God wants sinners to be shamed. God wants sinners to be ashamed of their actions that they might repent and believe in Christ. And God might just use your response, your good behavior in Christ, to bring about redemptive opportunities that you might be able to share why you have hope, that they might be ashamed of their behavior that they have brought forth. So that's what we saw so far, and that leads into our passage, where I believe the last thing we need to understand is that we need to look at the perfect example of Christ and recognize his suffering was purposeful, that his suffering brought about the tremendous realities of the forgiveness of sins, deliverance from death, and the defeat of Satan, who ultimately is behind all this stuff. Look in chapter 5. He prowls about like a roaring lion seeking one to devour. He's been a defeated foe. God took the worst that could come against his son and brought it into and brought about the best, the forgiveness of sins. So in our passage, I want to read into it, verse 17. For it is better, or literally good, if God should so will that you suffer for doing what is right rather than doing what is wrong. And here's where our passage begins. For, or because Christ also died, or literally suffered, and it, it, it implies his death, absolutely, for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. The main flow of thought here is, it is good if God wills you suffer, doing what is right, because God did the same with Jesus. Because God did the same with Jesus also. He suffered for what was right. Now he's not saying that our suffering brings redemption. Our suffering in the light of the will of God brings opportunities for people to trust in Jesus Christ. God is the one who saves. But he uses his people. He uses the body of Christ. You see, it's always good to follow in the footsteps of Christ if God should so will it. There's nothing more glorious than being used in his redemptive plan. When we suffer, we need to remember that Christ, notice that word also, verse 18, also, also died for our sins. Ultimately, that he would bring us to God. The implication is Christ also suffered unjustly. Just like you are suffering unjustly. God willed that Christ would suffer unjustly. That he would be delivered up by the hands of godless men. That they would crucify him. And that he would bear our sins in his body on the cross. Die and raise from the dead. God willed that and it is good. For Christ also suffered. You know, it's amazing as we look at this that we so often get our eyes off Jesus Christ. We read one verse, Sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts, and the next few verses we get distracted. We need to get focused back in Christ. And that's exactly what Peter does. Exactly what he does. Notice he says, first of all, that he suffered or died, also died for our sins. And if you look at the end of verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh. Jesus Christ died for our sins. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Jesus Christ died for sins, but as we'll see, our sins. And we'll see once for all. He died. Now as you're turning there, the term Christ speaks of the anointed one. It's the, it's the equivalent to the Hebrew term Mashiach, which means Messiah. 
And it pointed to the reality of Jesus Christ, the one who would be the king, who is the king of kings and Lord of lords, who would die for our sins. First Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, which I, which I preached to you, which you also received, which also you received, in which you stand, by which you are also saved. If you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. 1 Corinthians 15.3 For I delivered to you of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was pierced for our transgressions. The iniquity of us all fell upon him, as we will see. He died for our sins. He was put to death in the flesh. He suffered all the way to death. He suffered all the way to death. Now notice what it was. For sins. For sins. You see, he suffered for our sins. The reason why Jesus Christ went to the cross was for our sins. You see, the wages of sin is death. Sin brings about separation from us and God because God is a holy God and sin brings forth his judgment. And if you die in your sins, uh, you will be separated from God and you will experience the second death after judgment in the lake of fire forever. Punishment for your sins. God's a holy God and he takes sin seriously. But yet God took on human flesh. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. John the Baptist pointing to Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Peter would share earlier in chapter 2, verse 24, that Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. And as I mentioned from Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall upon him. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Jesus died for one reason, because of sin. Now certainly he died because he loves us, but he died to take care of sin. He died for our sins. He died. He bore our sins in his body on the cross, and he died. And notice his death was a once-for-all, all-one-time transaction. Back to our passage in 1 Peter chapter 3. For, verse 18, or because Christ also died for sins, notice the phrase, once for all. Now the term once for all doesn't mean his, that salvation applies to everyone. We know there are people who will go to hell who reject Jesus Christ. But in the terminology, in the Greek language here, it means one time, once for all. One time. A once for all sacrifice his one-time sacrifice is sufficient for all time remember what jesus said at the cross right before he gave up his spirit and died bearing our sins he said it is finished john 19 30 it is finished it's done the work is done in the book of hebrews chapter 9 verse 28 jesus christ was offered once to bear the sins of many hebrews 9 28 Bob already read through Hebrews chapter 10, but in Hebrews 10, 10, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once 
for all. Hebrews 10.12, But he, having been offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, one sacrifice for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time onward when his enemies would be made a footstool at his feet. Chapter, he was 10, 14, for by one offering he has perfected for the, all time those who are sanctified. There's nothing you can do to earn salvation. Going to church does not give you salvation. Doing good things does not give you salvation. Keeping the golden rule does not bring about salvation. Christ died for sins one time. One time. It's a completed action. It's a completed action. And notice in our passage in 1 Peter, he continues, for because, or because Christ also died for our sins once for all. And look at this tremendous phrase, the just, and that's singular, for the unjust, and that's plural. You could translate this term just as righteous. It comes from the same word. The righteous for the unrighteous. Jesus Christ died for sins once for all. The righteous one, as we'll see, for the unrighteous. We need to understand that. Here we have what is called the substitutionary atonement. You see, God requires a death for sin. Jesus Christ, the righteous, took our sins on his, in, in our place. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God bore our sins and died in our place. Peter mentioned this earlier. Turn back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 17. And if you address the Father as one who impartially judges according to each man's work, hey, if you recognize he's the judge, conduct yourselves in fear during your time to stay upon the earth, knowing, knowing something, knowing that you were not redeemed, the term means purchased, you were not redeemed with perishable things from your silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but, the implication is, but you were redeemed, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. Jesus paid it all. He paid the complete price for our sins. God does not require anything from you at all because you can't give him anything because we are sinners. It is pride to think I can do anything to please God apart from faith. You see, God demands that we repent and believe in Jesus Christ, the righteous. He commands you to do so. Repent and believe. And Jesus himself said it, Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel. Jesus Christ, without sin, took our sins in his body on the cross. He was and is righteous. He is the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God that all those sacrifices pictured and portrayed that went to one, that portrayed and, and pointed to one sacrifice. God sent His Son. He became flesh. He took on a human body just like us, except without sin. And not only did He take on a human body, He lived the perfect life. And then in obedience to God's will, He went to the cross and paid the penalty for our sins and died for us. That's the heart of the gospel. That's the heart of what we're to be ready to share, by the way, in advance. That we are sinners under God's judgment, and yet God sent his son in our place to share a legal defense why we have hope. The sinless, spotless Lamb of God bore our sins in his body on the cross. He took our punishment. 
Second Corinthians chapter 5:21, "He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him, the just for the unjust. And when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, we receive His righteousness, and we become righteous because of Christ. Tremendous, wonderful reality. He bore our sins in his body, the just for the unjust. And the purpose, back in our passage, in order that he might bring us to God. First Peter 3.18, the middle of it. In order that he might bring us to God. You want a relationship with God? It only comes through Jesus Christ. You want a relationship with God? It only comes through faith in Jesus Christ. You want a relationship with God? It only comes when you are declared righteous through faith in Jesus Christ. He died for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order to bring us to God. And although Jesus is fully God, Paul tells Timothy this wonderful truth concerning his meteorical role, his role as mediator. 1 Timothy 2.5 For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. You see, God became a man to bridge the gap between himself and us by taking care of our sins. You see, there is no way you can have a relationship with God apart from faith in Jesus Christ, believing who he is, fully God and fully man. There's other Jesuses out there, I'll tell you right now. They're not the Jesus of Scripture. But believing in the true Jesus and what he has done on the cross for you, that he died for our sins and rose from the dead. There's no other way to be saved. Acts chapter 4. Turn to Acts chapter 4. Verse 10. As uh, Peter shares here, let it be known to you all. Acts chapter 4 verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified and God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. They had healed the man, and it's because of Jesus. And notice what he says. He is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, but which became the very cornerstone. Verse 12. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus Christ is the only Savior, and it is through his one-time sacrifice. When you acknowledge that you are unjust, you are unrighteous, and you turn to the righteous one who bore your sins in his body, you cry out for salvation, he will save you, and you will have a relationship with the living God. Are you willing to acknowledge your sin? It comes in many different uh, colors. Are you willing to honestly be convicted of your sin and turn to Jesus Christ, the only Savior? He died for our sins that he might bring us to God. And here we see the tremendous reality here that Jesus' response to unjust suffering according to the will of God was what God used to bring about our salvation. It was good. It was good. And if we also should suffer for what is good, if God should so will it, we need to recognize what God says. Look at verse 17 back in chapter 3. 
For it is better if God should so will it, or it is good that you suffer for doing what is right than doing what is wrong. For or because Christ also died or suffered for our sins once for all, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. And now we come to an interesting portion of Scripture where it seems like a digression, but it really isn't. I believe we're going to see in what Christ did reveals the further victory that he brought forth through his death and also illustrates even more so what God does through unjust suffering. In the middle of verse 18, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Now this is a difficult passage and some say, some say it's one of the most difficult passages in the Bible to interpret. Now, I don't know if that's the case, but I know it is a difficult passage, but we have the Spirit of God, and if we're humbling ourselves before God and asking Him to show us the truth, then we rightly divide it. I think we can understand what the Lord wants us to know. Notice this phrase, and I think this is key to recognizing and understanding. Having been put to death in the flesh, but in contrast, made alive in the Spirit. I can understand that, can't I? We can understand that. God took on human flesh. He came into this world. And then he died in the flesh, right? He died for our sins. We understand that. And then in contrast, something else happened. But made alive in the spirit. The timing is when he died. That's where the contrast is. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. You go, what are you talking about? I think it's easy to see it this way in terms of the way the Greek language works. He was put to death in the realm of the flesh. Where did, it body, where did his body go for three days? In the grave. But during that time, he was made alive in the realm of the spirit. What did he tell the thief on the cross that day? Today, not tomorrow, not three days from now. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Well, his body went in the grave but Christ said he would be in paradise that point. And you'll remember he said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. So what does this mean? Well, we know first of all that when he bore our sins on the cross, he was separated from the Father. Jesus Christ experienced that spiritual separation. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He was bearing our sins. But when that was done... We have the contrast, made alive in the spiritual spirit. He was no longer dead to God for that moment, but while he was bearing our sins, he's alive. No longer spiritually separated. So Jesus died in the sphere of the flesh, but he was made alive in the spiritual sphere. And then, notice, this is what helps us understand this, and it's a difficult passage, verse 19, in which also... What's he talking about? In that spiritual sphere in which he was made alive, he also did something. Does that make sense? In which also he made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who were once disobedient when the patience of God was waiting during the, in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark which, in which few as eight, that is eight persons were brought safely through the water. You say, oh boy, it's getting confusing now. Actually, it's, it's not if we follow it through. And although there are many different interpretations here, I think we can understand the main point. 
So in the spiritual sphere, it says he also went and made Caruso a proclamation. A proclamation. And it says he made it to the spirits that are now in prison. The question is, who are these spirits? And when did he make that proclamation? Well, the context, I believe, makes it clear it was after he was put to death in the flesh, he was made alive in the spirit. That seems to nail down the timing for us. Now, there's three main possible interpretations of this, what this means. And there's, there's a million of them, but these are the three main ones that come forth. The first one is that Jesus proclaimed the gospel to unbelievers in prison during the time of Noah, giving them a second chance. That's what some would say. They would say, okay, he died on the cross. He went and he, when he went to those people that had died during the time of Noah to their spirits and proclaimed the gospel and gave them a second chance. I don't believe that's the case because... Scripture says it is appointed man once to die and then the judgment. And guess what? The people during the time of Noah had a preacher of righteousness around them declaring the truth, and they had the ark as a testimony, which they all saw when they drowned, probably. Many did, obviously. So I don't believe that's the right interpretation. And then secondly, secondly, uh, we see... that uh, Christ possibly, they say, preached through Noah, that this is speaking of him back during the time of Noah, spiritually preaching through Noah. Well, we know that Christ did that, right? Noah didn't preach out of his own abilities and power. God enabled him to bring forth the word of God. So God did that through him. That's, That's not an argument there. But is that what this is speaking of? I don't believe so. Because uh, we see the, contra- the, the contrast between put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. It seems like the timing is during that three days. So there's a third view, and I personally believe this is the correct view. But I think even in the midst of this, we can still get the main point. The third view, and I believe the context demands this view, by the way, is that Jesus Christ, when he died in the flesh, was made alive in the spiritual sphere. We know that. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And that sphere was where he made a proclamation to spirits in prison who were disobedient during the time of Noah. Well, what do we know about the time of Noah? We know very clearly that there were angels who left their abode. Now, if you... Let's look at this and read this again for context. Verse 18, back in our passage. For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God... Having been put to death in the flesh, that's where he was put to death, but made alive in the spirit, that spiritual sphere, in which, that spiritual sphere, he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. There are spirits that are imprisoned, okay? Who were once disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Now you can get the message that I preached in Genesis chapter 6 where we go through this in detail, But it is interesting, if you look at the beginning of the flood account, the first thing it talks about is the sons of God and the daughters of men. And then it speaks of God being distressed with all flesh. There was great evil going on before the time of the flood judgment. And it is my thought, in my view, that the sons of God spoken of were demons. They crossed a line. And they went to the daughters of men, gross immorality. Take a look at Second Peter. Let's look at this, because the New Testament seems to affirm this. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. You see, Satan is always trying to thwart Christ. 
And one way to thwart him would to be to destroy the human line, right? Certainly would. Because where, where would the Savior come from? The seed of Eve. Okay? Second Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned. Very interesting. But cast them into hell, or, or it's a different word there than hell, uh, and Tartarus, and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. And did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You see these things together, angels and the world. And he says God didn't spare them when they sinned. There are a group of angels that are in prison right now. We'll see that in Jude. Now, Satan and his minions, they are free right now for a temporal time. But there is a group that sinned and crossed the line, and they are in prison, Second Peter. Now look at Jude, just up a little farther, Jude. Angels have a certain domain or a sphere that they can be in. And these very wicked demons crossed a line. Jude chapter... Well, was only one chapter. Jude verse 6. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment. They're in prison. They're in prison. And notice this phrase. This is very important to understand what, what they did. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these. What do you mean? The angels. It's just the reverse. Do you remember what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? That the angels came to deliver Lot and the wicked men of Sodom wanted to do things with the angels. Do you remember that? In the same way, but reverse, is why these angels are in prison. And I believe if you keep reading, that's why. And they went after, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh. Strange flesh and are exhibiting and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. So what am I trying to say? It appears that Jesus went and made a victory proclamation to the demons that sinned the most and tried to thwart the most, who are in prison as examples. You see, not only did Jesus deliver us from sin and death, he defeated Satan. And you say, why do I think this interpretation is, is probably the right one? Because he actually talks in the next verse or two about demonic powers and realms. Look down um, at uh, verse 22, who at, back in 1 Peter 3. Who is at the right hand of God, speaking of Jesus, having gone into heaven, and then after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, it was finished. The work of the cross was done. He defeated Satan and his minions. And then he ascended and went to the right hand. He made a proclamation. He made a proclamation. I believe that's what's going on here. Some say, well, how could he make a proclamation in paradise to the spirits in prison? Well, if you remember the rich man in Lazarus, Father Abraham speaking across to those who were in torment easily. And he's God, obviously, so... So without being distracted by the multiple interpretations, what is the main point... The main point, I believe, is that Jesus' suffering unjustly according to the will of God brought about the defeat of sin and death and Satan. God did the greatest good. 
And if God should so will it for you, it is good. Don't see it wrongly. Remember, Peter saw it wrongly. Jesus said, I got to go to the cross. And Peter said, no, Lord. And what did the Lord say to him? Get behind me, Satan. You're thinking man's thoughts, not God's. We need to not think man's thoughts when we are going through difficulties for trusting Christ. We need to trust the Lord that he is doing good, that he is doing good. Now notice, I believe within this, there's also an illustration of Noah's purposeful suffering, which brought about salvation, a picture of it. By the way, Noah suffered, by the way, and the very thing he suffered and was what God used to save him, by the way, the very reason he suffered, obeying God, building an ark, is the very thing God used to save him. Look at our passage again. Verse 18, 318. For, or because Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, in order that he might bring us to God. Amen. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also that sphere he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. I believe those are the ones who were disobedient during the times of Noah. That's what it says. Who were disobedient. Uh, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, we know from Genesis chapter 6, man was sinful, every intent was wicked, but also... The demons were doing very evil things and were put into prison. And he says, during the time, kept waiting during the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which few, that is, eight persons were brought safely through the water. God brought a flood judgment upon the earth, and only eight people were brought safely. Back in Genesis 6, we see God was finally fed up with the wickedness of man that every intent of his heart was continually evil and that he was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart and said he was going to blot out man. But yet Noah found grace or favor. So God was patient during that 120 years of man's incredible wicked disobedience. Man is giving and giving in marriage and having their fun time like we see in Matthew until the day the flood came. God was patient while Noah built the ark. He was commanded to build it, and he did it. And through that ark, eight people were saved. Noah, his wife, and his sons, and their wives. You see, Noah was a preacher of righteousness, one who found grace through whom the seed of Eve would bring the forgiveness of sins. And they were brought safely through the water. The term means to be saved through. They were saved through the water. They were saved from the flood of God's judgment for sin. And what saved them? Well, certainly the water saved them in a sense, but the ark saved them. The very thing that Noah was most likely ridiculed for. Hebrews chapter 11 speaks of Noah. Hebrews 11:7 by faith Noah being warned by God about the things not yet seen in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household the ark was for salvation from the flood by which he condemned the world and became the heir of righteousness according which is according to faith you see mankind was eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all Luke chapter 17:27 and certainly it is implied within these passages that Noah suffered for doing what is right. God willed it so. He was a preacher of righteousness in the midst of a totally ungodly world that God was patiently enduring until the ark would be completed and he could bring his flood judgment upon the earth. 
Noah acted righteously, obeying and preaching for 120 years. He was surrounded by hostile, wicked unbelievers. Every thought and intention of their heart was wicked. He, was, he witnessed boldly by obeying and preaching, obviously, by building the ark. He realized and understood judgment was coming. He suffered for the very thing that saved him. It's a, it's a picture. Noah did all the Lord commanded him, and in his obedience, God used the ark to save him. The very thing that Noah suffered for was the means by which he was saved in the flood judgment. And likewise, as we see here, the very thing Christ endured is the means in which we are saved. That's the point. Notice that I'm going to read this again. We're actually coming down to verse 21. And corresponding to that. What is the that? Speaking about Noah being saved in the ark, right? And his family, right? Now he says, baptism now saves you. Now, if you were in a cult, they would stop the sentence right there and they wouldn't explain anything else. If you were in the church of Christ, cults who believe you have to be baptized in water to be saved, they would stop right there and say, look at that, it says that. And they don't read the next phrase. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. You see, we're going to see that what saves us is Christ. Christ is what saves us. It's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ we're saved. And when we appeal to God for a cleansed heart, for forgiveness of sins, we are united with Christ. That union with him, which we'll see is baptism spiritually, saves us. You see, just like the ark saved Noah, Jesus Christ saves us from the flood of God's judgment over eternity. You see, judgment is coming. The people in the, in the time of Noah thought they could just live their lives all they want till that day it came. And guess what? It came and they were judged and they died and they went to Hades, as we see in Scripture, ultimately on their way to eternal fire. And God has declared that it is appointed man wants to die and then the judgment. There is a judgment coming. You can get away with sin every day of your life. You can disobey your parents every day. You can dishonor them. You can do anything. You can get away with it. But the day will come where God judges you. And yet Christ is that ark of salvation for us. When you trust in him, we are delivered from God's judgment. Notice this phrase, and corresponding to that, the term corresponding comes from the Greek word anti-tupon. It speaks of, and the King James translates it anti-type, and that's a good translation. Anti means over or against or opposite. Tupon means the impression stricken by a blow. And so this word came to mean to strike against or reflect back. What does that mean? Something reflects something. It corresponds to something. And that's why they translate it corresponding. The picture of Noah and the ark and the ark that saved him corresponds to Christ suffering righteously to bring about our salvation. God bringing good through suffering. He says in corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. And it's not water baptism. Water baptism is a picture of what has happened spiritually. Water baptism doesn't save anyone. But he says, not the removal of flesh, but an appeal to God for our good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, 
This, the term baptism in Scripture means to identify with or to place. It came from the Greek word bapto, which means to dip. And if I was to take white fabric and dip it in dye, blue dye, and I pulled out, that fabric is now identified with that dye. When we are baptized, we are outwardly identifying that we are dead to our old life and raised in newness of life. Our sins have been cleansed in Jesus Christ. We have been united with him. Look at Galatians chapter 3, verse 27. You see, our appeal to God doesn't save us. God saves us because he is faithful to his word. And if you call upon him, he will save you. And how we are saved is by putting union with Jesus Christ. All the work that Jesus did on the cross now applies to us. His righteousness applies to us. His death to sin applies to us. And we now, in union with him, are saved. It is through baptism with him, spiritual baptism, we are saved. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. It's faith. For all of you who were baptized into what? Into Christ. Have clothed yourselves with Christ. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, I'll read it for you. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The reality is when we trust in Jesus Christ, when we appeal to God for a cleansed heart, for forgiveness of sins, a clean conscience, God unites us with Christ. All the work that Christ did for us applies to us now. His death, his burial, his resurrection. We are dead to our sins sins and raised in newness of life. This is what Paul says in Romans 6. Turn to Romans 6. And these pictures are here to show us ultimately that your suffering is not with no purpose. If God used the greatest purpose to bring salvation through Christ, he even illustrates it with Noah. If you suffer, it's good. It's good. Romans 6.1 What shall we say then? Are we to continue to sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who die to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, or you could say placed into or united with, that helps us understand that. There are, are there two words that didn't get translated over in, the, in our English translations in the 1600s. They didn't get translated. One is deacon and one is baptized. We, we got a transliteration of those words. So when we hear it, we kind of go, what does that mean? It means placed into, united with. He says, or do you not know all of us who have been baptized into Christ or united with Christ into, have, have been baptized into his death? We've been united with his death. Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that Christ who is raised from the dead to the glory of the Father, so too as that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. And notice this, he's explaining, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of death might be done away, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, For he who has died is freed from sin. The the point is, when you appeal to God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you believe he died for your sins and rose, and you say, Lord God, I am a sinner, I need salvation. When he saves you, he unites you to Christ, and all the work that Christ did on your behalf applies to you. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 
Jesus Christ saves. And he's accomplished the work and risen from the dead. And if you cry out to him, he'll save you. He'll save you. Have you been saved? Have you realized your heart is sinful and in need of a savior? Have you realized, even kids, that when you disobey your parents, that's sin? When you disobey, when we disobey God's word, when we have a wrong attitude, thought, worry, whatever it might be, anger, it's sin. And the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's finish our last verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 22. Speaking of Jesus Christ, the word Jesus means the Lord is, is salvation, Yeshua. Christ speaks of the Messiah, the King of kings, Lord of lords, the anointed one. Jesus Christ, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God. The right hand spoke of authority and power. Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is now at the right hand. You might not have thought he was the King of kings and Lord of lords when he was on earth, but he ascended to that. Notice he says, having gone into heaven, and he says, after something happened, after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him, after he had defeated Satan and his minions, he ascended and is now at the right hand. When did he defeat them? On the cross. Victory. Victory in Jesus. Let me share one last passage before we finish up. Turn to Colossians chapter 2. You see, the cross of Christ defeated Satan. Defeated all his minions. Took care of sin. The greatest good was done through the greatest evil that God allowed. we got to get that. Because sometimes things that happen to us are pretty evil. Sometimes things that people say are pretty evil. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13. And when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, that means you were, you were you're in your sin. You weren't saved. In the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. That's the forgiveness of sins. Having canceled out the certificate of debt that, consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us. You see, every sin you sin, God is keeping an account. A record. It is just piling up for judgment. When you trust in Jesus Christ, it's canceled. It's been canceled. Having nailed it to the cross, having taken it out of the way, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. And notice what he says here. Very interesting. He adds this in. When he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made public display over them, having triumphed over them through him. Public display? You have lost. It is finished. The work is done. He, he completed it. He died for our sins. He made public display. So then the main point in our passage is abundantly clear. God used the worst unjust suffering that man could bring upon his son Jesus to bring the ultimate good. And if God should reckon it, if he should will it so, not reckon it, will it so, it's good. It's good. Therefore, don't be fearful about it. Don't be troubled. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to give a defense for the hope you have, keeping a good conscience. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, and it's all about your son. We thank you for his perfect example to which you have 
declared we are to follow in his footsteps as we abide and trust in you. Thank you that he did not revile in return, that he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to you who judge us righteously. Thank you that he bore our sins in his body on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to you. Father, help us to apply these truths to our hearts when we encounter the things that you say we will encounter, when we suffer for doing what is right. May we sanctify Christ as Lord of our hearts. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.